On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast for January 2015. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey Johnson from the Divisions of Nuclear and Thoracic Radiology in the Department of Radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He will be discussing his article in our Ahead of the Curve series entitled Future of Thoracic Pet. Dr. Johnson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Jeff, why don't we bring everyone up to speed? Because your article is obviously about where things are going and what's available, you know, now in some centers. But, you know, I was just thinking about this. You know, for when PET sort of splashed on the scene rapidly in the last five or ten years, there's probably been some developments that, you know, those of us that aren't knee-deep in, in this field might not even be aware of that are, you know, here and now and that people are doing before we even start to talk about some of the future. So I'm wondering, could you, could you just fill us in on what's, new and exciting just within the last five years that has disseminated, you know, far and wide that has changed in PET. You know, the analogy being like, gosh, when I started my training, I think we had a two-slice CAT scanner, and now I've lost track of how many slices we've got, right? So what's going on in PET? Well, there's a number of things there. We could talk about hardware or software or clinical uses of PET and kind of focused on thoracic, given your audience. We could talk about the fact that PET, you know, initially was – the first cancer diagnosis that it was approved for was indeterminate lung nodule. And obviously we've come a long way from that. We now more widely use it in terms of lung for cancer staging and cancer follow-up. And we're even expanding into areas that have been kind of led into by lymphoma research where we can monitor the response to chemotherapy before we see changes in CT or even MRI size of lesions. We can see changes in the response to the chemotherapy in terms of the amount of glucose that the tumors are consuming and maybe even change chemotherapy before we would ordinarily complete chemotherapy if they're not working. So those are clinically, there's, there's those kind of main steps that have gone on. In terms of technology, very much like you have the slices on the CT scanner that you mentioned, we have progressed through multiple major steps in, in advances in the technology of PET. From the original PET-only scanner, to the PET-CT, which is now widely adopted as the standard of care, where you combine the CT for attenuation correction and much better co-localization and a little bit of help with the diagnoses. But then it's gone from two-dimensional PET to three-dimensional PET to three-dimensional PET with time of flight, which is all advances in the PET technology where we can get much higher resolution in terms of how accurate the amount of activity we have in each voxel is. Um, still, you know, it's not the same kind of resolution you have with CT or MRI, but uh, in terms of molecular imaging, we're able to image very tiny quantities of things and localize them for predominantly for cancer, but expanding into other areas as well. Yeah, PET, PET seems to, in the last couple of years, uh, running with the analogy, gone from the black and white TV to at least the TV I had while I was in medical school, but you're not yet at plasma screen quality yet, are you? Right. <laughs> but that's coming, and that's what a lot of what your article's about, about you know, what is probably right now, you know, clearly going on in those doing the research and, and are pushing the technology both from a hardware and a software and then a functional use. But, you know, your article is extremely exciting, especially in the thoracic realm for those of us that are obviously uh, utilizing this imaging to, to, to guide our, our clinical decisions and to, and to guide our diagnostics. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that are major steps forward coming right now and in the next couple of years here that are going to have an impact on thoracic radiology. 
And some of them are going to be a little bit jarring in the sense that not so much the, the resolution, although that does improve, but the accuracy of the amount of activity in each voxel of cancer and being able to see smaller cancers and, and trying to deal with uh, those changes in, in how we deal with patients is going to be it's definitely going to be interesting, along with new radio tracers. I mean, there's so many radio tracers, so many great scientists out there working to come up with new radio tracers, many of which never make it to clinical practice. But that's starting to change, and more recently we've had a few FDA approvals, and, and we have a few more we're hoping for in the next few years that I think will make a difference. Yeah, I was very excited about uh, some of the work or some of the data you were showing about, say, like a carcinoid, where, you know, typically being a slower growing, the typical – you know, glucose-based pets, not really going to show a lot of activity, but if you had a very specific uh, agent that would be uptake, you know, have good uptake, then you'd change that entire analysis of, of where you would use pets. Exactly. So, you know, we all hate the situation where you have a, you know, 8-millimeter to 1-centimeter nodule, and you you look at it, and it's indeterminate, and it's round and solid, and, and, and you say it's negative on pets, on FDG pets. Well, what does that mean? You still haven't ruled out kind of low-grade mucinous adenocarcinoma, which can be more solid in appearance, or carcinoid tumors, both of which are neoplastic. And so if you see any change in size, you still have that minority of patients who, who you haven't really ruled out all neoplastic disease, even though you've ruled out most, the vast majority of metastasis or higher-grade primary cancers, which is perhaps more important. So agents like the octreotide uh, agents that are now coming out for pets, some of which that have been available in Europe and are still experimental here, like Dota Knock, Dota Talk, Dota Tate. These are all variations of octreotide that can be used in a PET scanner. And uh, a number of groups, including Society Nuclear Medicine and other consortiums of centers, are pushing these forward to try and get them uh, FDA approved so that we can get them used in the U.S. And, and that seems to be moving forward. Uh, pretty well. And I, it's, again, like you said, it's a prediction of the future. So, you know, if we if we know that 50% of what we know now is wrong, I'm probably wrong on more than half of what I put in this article. <laughs> but saying that, you know, we have hopes that these will work. And, and, and the results that we see in Europe and some of the centers here that are experimenting with them are quite promising. So to those people who do focus on carcinoid tumors, uh, some of which we have here, who complain to me routinely, you know, you guys just don't have a good enough agent. We cannot see the kind of therapy response we need. We can't see the smaller tumors. Uh, you guys need to, to help us out here. This is really, I think, uh, the thing we have in the uh, in the tube ready to come out soon to, to try and deal with that. I was also struck by something you said earlier, and that was also in your article about using PET to gauge chemo responses as opposed to, you know, here you're going to get several weeks, we'll do a CAT scan and you know, maybe the thing shrinks a little, and that's and that's considered a win. Um, right. You know, but actually using a more, which always seemed a little silly, and and obviously had no functional correspondence, and and so you know, or correlation, excuse me. So you know, could you fill me in on that data and and where this is going? Is this something that still is under investigation, or are there are we looking and seeing clinical correlations to what you're describing as far as a pet response? Well, I think there's a mix there, and and again, uh, in lymphoma, there's much better. Uh, knowledge base here. So in other words, there are a lot of lymphomas where they commonly will do what they call therapy monitoring or chemotherapy monitoring. So you do initial PET CT at initial staging to uh, find where all the cancer is, and then you may start a chemotherapy plan and then do another PET CT after two to three rounds of what would be a six-round chemotherapy. And 
basically what you're looking for is complete wipeout of all FDG activity and it, you know, below the level of detection or kind of blood pool levels. Right. And if you see that, you know, uh, based on a lot of literature, that if they finish that chemotherapy, the long-term prognosis will be good. Uh, and if you don't see that, you see a small decrease or even worse, progression of disease, then you quickly switch to a new uh, second or third round, uh, third tier uh, chemotherapy agent uh, to try and go for cure. In lung cancer, it's a little different because, of course, lung cancer is less curable in general than lymphoma. So when and where you choose to use it for therapy monitoring is a little less clear, but uh, there are some non-small cell lung cancers uh, that are, you know, being treated primarily with chemo where they uh, will try and do therapy monitoring now, but it is more experimental. The data is developing. But, I mean, there's a good precedent, as you said, like the lymphoma model, and it lets right. you it lets you go and, and scrap plan A for plan B a lot sooner uh, than waiting for either progression of disease or just lack of a, of a CT-gauged response. Yes, exactly. You can also imagine there being um, some utility being able to dis- discriminate between what is, you know, after an area that's been radiated as well, then what is residual tumor versus what is simply the fibrotic reaction or a scarring reaction. And that gets harder, especially in the context of these new focal radiation therapies like SBRT, um, it gets much harder because the lung likes to inflame itself when it gets hit with radiation, and we see that on FDG uh, PET as a lot of immunologic response in the lung. So that's a little bit more difficult. In fact, some people will tell their their patient, hey, if we're going to use SBRT, you may not know for sure if we got the cancer for 6 to 12 months because we can't really image it very well. Um, so things that are coming down the line there that may be helpful or, or promising are things like FLT or fluorothymidine, which is a DNA marker, which may pick up better in cancer and less in inflammation, giving us a chance to look into that. That's a little more far off in terms of getting it through the FDA, but those are where the hopes are for those kind of things. I wonder also, so you, your article talks about, you know, I, I was raised on the SUV as far as it being the uh, end-all, be-all for does, you know, is this PET positive or negative and how positive? But right. it, it's, it sure seems like there's some interesting work going on that the SUV, you know, it might have been an interesting first pass, but, you know, times have changed and we're moving on to uh, things like the metabolic tumor volume and the total lesion glycolysis. Could you tell me, the, how do these work? What's the value of that information? Is it, yeah. Or am I just splicing data a different way? It, well, it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, more than one factor kind of put together. So if you look at what is SUV max, the SUV just takes into account what you injected uh, into a patient, the amount of decay, and some sort of representative of the volume of the patient. Um, and so if something is more than 1.0, it has accumulated in a location relative to other locations. And that's, right. that's all it is. And so when you get SUV max, it's just the most intense pixel within your circle, if you will. So that is a very high variability, and it doesn't tell you how much cancer the patient has. It doesn't give you as much information as things like metabolic tumor volume where you say, here's a threshold above which I'm calling it cancer, and I'm putting this region, I'm saying this is the cancer, and with these new softwares that are coming out, you can either drop a seed in the middle of the cancer and let it grow, or you can exclude areas or draw around it and have it locate the cancer within that area. And using different types of thresholds of where the edge of that is, get the entire volume, the metabolic tumor volume. Now, that's 
more useful information in terms of prognosis in many of the studies that are coming out. And if you combine the two, where you take of that volume the mean SUV pixel and the total volume, you get the total lesion glycolysis, which is kind of a, a multiplication of the two factors. Okay. Very good in some kinds of cancers for giving long-term prognosis and perhaps more important than the overall stage. You know, if you've got a humongous mass uh, in, uh, versus uh, metastasis in multiple locations, uh, it helps you to take into account more a combination of that activity and that volume uh, to plan your therapy. Does that have implications for, is, that you're aware of yet in regards to, you know, if there, say, for example, the metabolic tumor volume, if, if the implication here is that, you know, obviously the thing that's solid on a CAT scan, not all of it is tumor. Some of it is, you know, uh, reaction around it. Some of it is, you know, lung collapse and atelectasis right. and whatnot. Um, does that have implications then for uh, even deciding on some surgical approaches, on something that potentially was viewed to be too close to, you know, major structures, thereby making the patient inoperable, but the PET may argue, well, not so fast. Well, you know, I think whenever you're in that situation, you're still reliant on the person interpreting the imaging. Okay. In other words, even though you have this tool that helps you to uh, plant a seed and let it grow, you have to tell it where it's wrong. You have to tell it where it's gone into post-obstructive pneumonia as opposed or, you know, uh, atelectasis, you can usually easily tell compared to a primary tumor kind of distal atelectasis. But if there's infection right. there or other things, you have to put all the information together to to come up with uh, where you think the edge of the tumor is. So as the softwares get better and easier to use, we'll start doing and putting out this data more and getting a better sense of, of how useful it is. But so far, uh, you know, if you put all things equal in a patient of this stage, et cetera, and you add metabolic tumor volume or total lesion glycolysis, you add information that we weren't really using before. I'm, I'm curious also, you know, a lot of this obviously, I mean, PET's obviously never been a uh, cheap technology, and in fact, no. one of the things that always seemed to be limiting its initial implementation was just simply the cost of the actual scan, which was obviously purely based a lot on the cost of the technologies. You know, the, it's, it's, you're struck by, you know, as again, going to the analogy of CT scans, as that technology has grown in advance, you still at times encounter patients who arrive with scans that look like they were from the machine that your hospital got rid of 10 years ago. Yes. And, uh, you know, somebody bought on, on the equivalent of eBay. Um, where are we with PET? You know, some of these, you know, like when you talked about the three-dimensional time of flight, you know, right. is those kind of calculations to increase your accuracy, is that the kind of phenomenon that we're seeing, you know, handful of sensors right now in the United States, or is that widely disseminated, or is that just a, a, the equivalent of an upgrade of, you know, the last PET system your hospital bought, et cetera? Right. Well, you know, so we stopped using two-dimensional PET scans in 2006. Okay. But of the outside scans that we see coming in, uh, a little more than half of them are still done on two-dimensional PET scanners, PET CT okay. scanners. Okay. And the difference between a two-dimensional and a three-dimensional or a three-dimensional in time of flight you know, is, uh, is important, but so also important is getting a good uptake, all the physiologic things you have to regulate, like the glucose. And, you know, it, there's all these other kind of things that you want to do at a center of excellence that are going to make the imaging better, how long you image for in each bed position, so you don't have too much noise, et cetera. They all come into play. So you can still get a diagnostic image on a 2D scan for most cancers. But when you have a negative scan, when you have a scan that, you know, you want to be able to say you have no active cancer, uh, the better the technology, the better the resolution, the more confident you're right. So, you know, in a large tumor, 
that you're going to see it on all those technologies. You know, right. you, got a, you got a three centimeter lymph node, fine, you're going to see it. Um, right. But it's those micro metastases and those other smaller things that you really want to define, where those little differences matter. And it's the next the technology, value, really. yes, you know, and that's just one of you know. There's other things too. You can see a little bit better resolution. Perhaps you're going to see perineural spread or some other thing that's going to put them into a different stage. But those are more uncommon situations. Now you you live in a, a world full, uh, you know, where where you're located, not, not a trivial amount of blastomycosis in your neck of the woods. No, and some histo that makes it up. And where I live and work, you know, I, we diagnose a ton of histo. So let's talk about uh, PET and the advances in the non-cancerous world. That you sure. the article your article talks about a lot of different inflammatory diseases, and of course, not a trivial amount of sarcoid for all of us in this field. And when we're right. you know you know facing these patients with abnormal CT. So tell me what's going on there. Well, you and know, we going on there in the future. We don't have FDA approval for using FDG PET for infectious inflammatory diseases in general. However, uh, a lot of private insurances are starting to pay for certain types of things, like mediastinal fibrosis, for example. We're getting reimbursed pretty well for that, and we do FDG PET pretty routinely for that. And we like to see if certain therapies are working by following up with FDG PET. So in those kind of situations, you wouldn't necessarily use the FDG PET for diagnosis in most cases. You'd use FDG PET because you know you're likely to see FDG activity when they're active and where they are active. So you can, you can find all the locations, kind of a, similar to staging a cancer, because it's a systemic scan. You can direct biopsy to a more easily targetable lesion, which is sometimes why we're doing it. And you can also do therapy follow-up. So you put a patient on steroids, you put them on rituximab or something like that. You want to knock down their inflammatory, maybe granulomatous or other types of diseases that we see really well on FTG PET. Uh, and the follow-up is quite useful because they're often very difficult things to image um, in certain areas of the body. Now, if a lung nodule goes away and it was organizing pneumonia and it's gone on the next CT, you don't need the PET. But if you've got some of these other things like IgG4 disease or, um, you know, giant cell arteritis, uh, we do quite a bit of PET for those. It's also nice because we see things uh, in a pattern that are sometimes helpful for diagnosis. And I know some of the clinicians here will kind of, you know, their hair goes on their, up on the back of their neck if I say that, because uh, <laughs> if you look at a, at a specific location in the body and say that's a lesion and it's FDG avid, you know, you really can't use that just to say whether you think it's inflammatory or cancer when you don't know what it is. Having said that, if you look at the whole body and you see a pattern of locations that's particularly good for Wagner's granulomatosis, which we now call GPA or other things like that, you can skew the diagnosis. You can be suggestive, you know, and, and sometimes that can be helpful. But really it's for, you know, finding all the locations, directing biopsy and for follow-up. And as we move forward and get more data on these other disease processes, I think it's just a matter of time before we can get them to be more a standard part of clinical practice because FDG PET works really well for a lot of them. Do you think there's a role for SPECT anymore? Um, well, you know, I think part of the article was the, I don't mean to question for a thoracic radiologist. I don't um, SPECT in terms of nuclear SPECT. Um, I, you know, there are things like a creatide that I'm kind of pronouncing the future death of, if you will, uh, by saying that we're all excited about the PET versions of those. And I think there really are. I mean, there are still new radio tracers coming out that are SPECT-only agents, um, not particularly in the chest, but um, 
some for Parkinson's-related tremors that just came out and the DAT scan and stuff that are SPECT only that are quite useful um, that don't necessarily have to be done in, in a PET uh, technique. Um, but in general, PET is just much more uh, uh, much higher resolution and really the growing area of molecular slash nuclear imaging. And so most people who are developing new agents are investing in that area. So, you know, until we get uh, the ability to do all the many, many different things we have on spec in PET, we won't be able to shift them all over. The other thing is we don't do um, dynamic imaging on PET very often. I mean, we're starting to do more of that, but things like your basic you know, nuclear GI studies where you're looking at gastric emptying and things like that. I, I really highly doubt we'll ever shift those over to PET. You don't need the resolution or the expense of those kind right. of things. Right. Anything exciting going on in the world of cardiac? Uh, yes. Um, in the article, I think I mentioned some, the uh, the new F-18 radio tracer that uh, is coming up to hopeful FDA approval in not too distant future um, where it would probably replace rubidium and perhaps even ammonia uh, as the agent of choice uh, where you're going to – because I don't know if the thoracic community understands this, but the, with rubidium, which is the most commonly used pet agent for cardiac um, infarct or, car or ischemia imaging, it gives off uh, a really high-energy positron. So I hope I don't lose my audience here, but it's just <laughs> lower resolution inherently. You can't get past that. So – these new agents would would probably uh, would allow you to have a, a better resolution image. Would allow you to distribute it over the entire U.S. to anyone who has a PET scanner. Um, and I think that, given that, it's probably just a matter of time before either the ones uh, like uh, for Pierdas or some of the other ones are, are going to get FDA approved and may give a rebirth to some of the stuff that we can do uh, in uh, FDG style of PET, if you will, or a F-18 version of PET for the cardiac uh, imaging. But there's also sarcoid and potentially even some really exciting new stuff on amyloid where we're using PET agents to image those things. In particular, the amyloid, people are using um, the agents that are designed for brain beta amyloid related to Alzheimer's in the heart and are able to see amyloid plaques from either transthyretin amyloid or uh, amyloid light chain from multiple myeloma type conditions. And using that may give us the ability to see with better detail the presence or absence of amyloid now that we're coming out with new therapies for that. So that's an exciting area that's going to be developing over the next few years. And those are FDA approved for the brain, so we can image clinical patients. We just can't get reimbursed for them yet. Right. Okay, and then now, you know, lastly, I mean, one of the other things was um, you mentioned PET MRI, and I was struck with that at first because, of course, I don't really tend to think of the MRI in, in lungs as being all that useful, um, mm -hmm. but you, you, your article does point out, of course, uh, like any good pulmonologist, there's you know there's lungs and then the rest of the body, but there are yep. other things in the thorax, <laughs> and yep. uh, and so the MRI becomes quite useful, and then of course combined with PET, I mean you know the whole world of pleural-based malignancy and pleural-based disease comes to mind as well. Yeah, and and this is um, the PET MR is something we're all very excited about and nervous about in in the sense that. I think there was a, an article that came out maybe five years ago where there were as many ideas for what we were going to use PETMR for as there were people asked. You know, we, you know, I don't think anyone believes that we're going to use PETMR to do all the things we're currently doing with PET-CT. Um, it's more expensive. The scans will likely take longer, et cetera, et cetera. PET-CT works very well. 
But some of the differences are that you have an MR instead of a CT, and of course there are things that MR is better at than CT. The lung, not usually one of them, but uh, the heart, the, the pleura in certain situations, yes. But the other difference in the technology is that the, one of the uh, models that is um, a PET-MR that's out in the market now and one that just got FDA approved uh, both allow you to image the patient at the same time with MR and PET. So it's different. So you may, some of your audience may know this and others may not, that with PET-CT it's not simultaneous. You do the CT scan, then you do the PET scan. The patient's just on the same bed. Whereas with PET-MR, with these newer models, they're scanning at the same time both PET and MR. So to the extent that you can use the MR to deal with motion, uh, like complex cardiac and respiratory motion, uh, you may be able to deconvolute a lot of that smearing effect that we have to deal with on PET because the PET scan takes two to five minutes to, to do a scan of any one body part. So you can't – it's very hard to try to – gate all of those things uh, and, and deal with all that motion. So that's one exciting area as well that I think related to cardiac or plural motion, we may be able to uh, get some really nice images. This stuff coming, you know, there's a, your, your articles, uh, it's very exciting when you read it. I mean, I'm thinking of all the different possibilities. What's, as a person who, who works, you know, knee-deep in this field, what are you most excited about? Like, what are the next... What are the three things that are coming down the pipeline or where you think the research is going that really get you excited as a, as a person who utilizes the technology on a regular basis? Well, we, we've touched on a lot of them. I mean, one of the ones we haven't mentioned in there that I think is, is really worth highlighting that we've been uh, playing around with um, is this, you know, we talked about the advances going from 2D to 3D to time-of-flight PET. There is a new uh, iterative reconstruction algorithm. So, in other words, how you take the PET data to make the, to make the PET image. And this one, I'm going to give you the technical name. The technical name is Bayesian Penalized Likelihood Iterative Reconstruction. Okay, so whatever. It's a new yeah, way. That just, roll, that just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> I know, I know. It makes me feel smarter than I am just to say it. But I didn't develop the mathematics, so, you know, I can't take any credit for that. But the, the concept is, is, is simple if you dumb it down. Instead of trying to get the accuracy to its maximum in every pixel, you have two goals. One, to get the maximum accuracy, and the other, to not have too much noise. And it's built into the algorithm to have both those goals. And as a result, it takes a tremendous amount of computing power. It's an old idea, but with newer algorithms and much, much more powerful computers, we can actually use it now. And the improvement in resolution is quite dramatic. There are limits, as we know, in the, in, the, in the field of PET in terms of how accurate we could possibly get the images to be just because of the way in which the photons come out of the body, et cetera. Right. Having said that, we're, we're realizing we weren't anywhere near uh, to, the, to, to, to that limit because as you see this new uh, software working, we can see nodules that are significantly smaller, and we're seeing much higher levels of activity in cancers than we had previously seen. So at the same time that it's exciting, because I think our, our negative predictive value, as we discussed before, is going to go up dramatically with this new kind of software, um, we also are going to have reports with, you know, SAV max of 67, you know, things that are much higher than uh, people are used to dealing with, and we're going to have to kind of redefine some of those variables that are coming out in our reports. Um, 
And some people have just suggested we call it QSUV instead of SUV to define this new kind of software. But this is actually available now, although many centers haven't started using it yet. It's, it's brand new, FDA approved on just a few different kinds of scanners. But, you know, I think as that kind of technology rolls out and as the computing power to do it rolls out, um, we're going to start saying, well, you know, what size pulmonary nodule do we consider referring to PET? Can we go down to five millimeter instead of eight millimeter? You know, um, so that's to me very exciting, but, um, because that really opens up the door to using the technology in a lot more patients uh, than we currently can. Um, granted, five millimeter nodule in the average patient, you probably shouldn't bother with a PET because it's probably right, not right. anyway. But you know, right, all those right. things aside, we you know we can we can evaluate much smaller foci of disease. So I think that's that's particularly exciting. Um, you know, we've talked about a lot of the other things uh, coming down the pike, and we haven't talked about the hardware in the PET scanner coming out with the newest PETMR scanners. So we talked about how the PETMR is interesting, but one of the reasons why I and many others are particularly excited about the PETMR is not the fact that it's with an MR, although that's cool, but the PET detectors that had to be developed to put the PET scanner in the MR are completely different. And they are the current most uh, high-accuracy ones are called silicone photomultiplier detectors. Now, why do we care? We care because they are a lot more sensitive. They catch a tremendous amount of photons coming out of the body, and they do it much faster. So you can scan faster. It's kind of like going from a, a one-and-a-half to a three-tesla magnet on an MRI. Okay. You just have a lot more bandwidth. Uh, you have a lot more data coming out of the patient to, to create your images with over a shorter period of time. So you can either lower the dose, you can make the scan shorter, or you can keep the dose the same and the scan the same and just have a really beautiful, clean, non-noisy image. Um, and we don't really even know how much we can do with these detectors. And as you look down the road, the ones that are coming out in scanners now and the ones that are being developed in the laboratories, you know, they're, they're, they're continuing to make them better and better and better and better. So I think... This yeah. is a byproduct of having to develop them to work with MR, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it's a so, nice little byproduct. The resolution got worlds better. So even if it's paired with CT, right. you know, it, it, it's a win for everybody. And I think, you know, there is one uh, currently on the market PET CT scanner with this kind of silicon photomultiplier in it um, that's generating quite a bit of excitement. But, you know, as we go forward, uh, both PET MR and PET CT, we will eventually get the cost to come down on these scanners, on these new photomultipliers, and we will eventually be able to get the software that I'm talking about uh, together with this improvement in the hardware. And when you compound that, our ability to see ever smaller lesions on PET is going to be quite impressive compared to what we're used to. I think also that, and it seems to me that then when you truly are calling something negative, no matter what the size, yep. uh, the, you know, even so, let's let's go to just a you know a 1.2 centimeter. When you're calling it negative, I think that'll provide an even higher level of reassurance given the, this improved resolution. One would assume so. Obviously, well, yeah, we'll people tell you you got to prove it, but right. but I think that all of our prior experience uh, would be consistent with that. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't think it'll be hard to prove. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Do you have a closing okay. thought? Do you have a, a closing, closing thought? Well, actually, let me ask you another quick question, real quick. Okay. Because I'm, I, you know, I'm. 
when, during my training, I was very much it was drilled in. Hey, you know, when you're ordering a CT scan and you've got specific questions, not only write them down, but pick up the phone, call down to radiology, and, and talk to the thoracic, you know, CT radiologist, and have a discussion with them about what you're looking for. Um, but I'm trying to remember if I've ever really done that with my nuclear medicine guys. Right. Um, is there a distinct value if the clinician's picking up the phone saying, "Hey, this is why I've ordered this pet." You know, yeah, they got lung cancer, but here's what I really care about, and, and you know, et cetera. Is there a value? Does, does your read? You know, and the interpretation change at all when you have uh, that additional, you know, hands-on clinical data? Well, I guess I, I mean, flip that around. First, I'll say yes. And second of all, I mean, if you're reading high volumes, you just, you know, you and we can't deal with that for every patient. Having oh, said that, right. there are patients you, know, you want to. Is there med disease or no? You know, next, exactly. You know. But, you know, I sit on the the thoracic uh, e-tumor board. We have this tumor board that we broadcast out to multiple centers and we do all these really complicated cases, and I can't tell you how much better I am at my job, and I think anyone who sits on a tumor board will echo this, having an understanding of what it is that you or anybody else ordering the scan really wants from me. Um, because you go through radiology training and you get a sense of it, but you're touching in all these different areas and stuff. But then if you dive deep into a particular area and really get to know your referring physicians and what they're looking for, it totally changes how you approach the scan, and it evolves with time, too, because you start to realize that now they can do different things. So, for example, like the cardiac amyloid thing I mentioned before, um, before we didn't have therapies for amyloid. Now we do. And so now we want to know not just only is there amyloid there, but we want to know is it this kind of amyloid or that kind of amyloid. You know, right. We want to know, you know specific things about... Uh, the kind of lung cancer it is. We don't care that it's non-small cell lung cancer. We want to know, is it likely to be adeno? Is it likely to be multifocal or metastatic adeno? Do we think the patient might have a driver mutation for which we've got to biopsy more tissue? You know, how do you have that conversation? Um, you know, and, you know, the patient, obviously, if you have any kind of clinical symptoms, you've got a pancoast tumor potentially, and the patient is having nerve symptoms as a person reading the imaging. I want to know that, you know, um, so that I can really make sure I've, looked for, whatever it is that the physicians were worried about with that particular patient. So I would say absolutely, but, um, you know, that's just, just <laughs> echoing back what we, are, what we all already know. I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, this is master of the obvious here, um, speaking uh, off the cuff, but I, I totally agree. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I, know our, I, I have no doubt that our listeners are going to have enjoyed this conversation and, and uh, definitely, uh, you know, Read the article, and if you haven't yet, um, it's, uh, it, it echoes exactly what, uh, you know, we talked about today on the podcast. It's, a, it's an excellent read. Well, Dr. Hogarth, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Jeff, I appreciate it. Have a great day, man. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye.